The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Uh, thank you guys for being here. Um, does everyone have a binder? If you're here last week, you should have received a binder. If you're, this is your first week, and that's true for a few of you. We have, looks like, one binder left. So some of you already found them. You guys need a binder? Um, Matt, will you run that last binder over to them? Uh, everyone else, good? You've got a binder, at least one per, per couple? Good, good. Uh, if you guys don't have one, let me know. We'll print off more. My name is Neil, one of the pastors here. Um, guy, I listened to last week. It was great. Kind of, whenever I spend time with Jason, it's like my soul weeps a beautiful, joyful sorrow because I'm so loved by the person of Jesus through Jason. Do you guys get that sense? It's like, ah, oh, Jason is in the room. I feel the love of the Father somehow. It's just like the beard and the, and the way he looks at you and just like, well, it's amazing. So I'm sorry, I'm not quite as Jason-esque, um, but that is why there are different types of teachers. Um, this morning we're going to look at what is what, is what we call complementarianism. Um, not, not just a, in a theological sense, not just looking at how is God designed and wired um, marriage and, and the relationships uh, that exists within different marriages, uh, but also what it means specifically for your marriage or as you anticipate marriage. Uh, how has God wisely brought this man and this woman together, uh, given different wirings and giftings, personalities, um, how that can be really frustrating at times and in some hard ways and in some beautiful ways, uh, but we're also a gift to one another, uh, that God has, has given um, someone who, who is different than me. My, my, my wife's here this morning, Aaron how she is different than me, and I'm different than her, and that actually comes together in a really good way, that we can represent who God is, the fullness of who God is, in ways that uh, we couldn't independently of each other. And it actually brings out a, a greater fullness. Um, so layout for this morning, I think Jason sounded like he did a, a lot of teaching and then discussion and then Q&A at the end. I want to break it up a little bit more. Um, so we'll talk up front for a little bit, more the, the theological lens of why did God create marriage? Um, what does it mean to be a husband? What does it mean to be a wife? In, in that vocation that God has called us to. And then we'll discuss for a little bit, and then we'll come back and we'll look at, okay, as it pertains to our specific relationships, uh, as you prepare for marriage or as you are, have been in marriage, um, how do we see the, the different strengths and weaknesses? You guys do that worksheet. Jason, have you guys do that handout? Um, so we'll look at that for a little bit. Um, but what does it look like to serve one another uh, both covering weakness and celebrating uh, the gifts that God has given to us in the other person. And then we'll discuss for a little more and end up with some, some Q&A. So let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into some Bible. Father, we thank you uh, that you've, you've created this thing called marriage. Uh, we wouldn't be smart enough to, to figure it out, um, to, to make it on our own, and certainly not to make it what it is and how you've, um, you've sought to proclaim your goodness, your glory, your character through it. So may, may we learn a, a proper humility before you, uh, that you, you've thought about these things uh, long, long before we ever have. Um, and it, it's for us to come under your word, under uh, what you've, you've given to us, uh, what is true, what is good, what is beautiful concerning a husband and a wife coming together. Yeah, so may we, may we be humbled by that beauty. Uh, may we be humbled um, in our own marriages or, or engaged engagement relationships as, as those in this room prepare for marriage. 
that we would begin to see and, and love the vision that you've laid out for the very purpose and meaning of the marriage covenant. Help us to know what that means practically, uh, tangibly, in, in everyday ways, uh, that we would, we would seek out proper rhythms in our lives that would, that would more fully display uh, you as the covenant-keeping God uh, who has so loved us through, through sacrifice, sacrificing your son that we may, we may be loved. So help us this morning, uh, Spirit, work in our hearts and minds in ways that uh, we, we certainly can't on our own. Uh, we, are, we are unable, we are incapable, apart from your kindness and your grace even now. So please glorify yourself. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's grab our Bibles and let's look at Ephesians chapter 5. All right, who wants to read? Ephesians 5, 22 through the end of the, the chapter, verse 33. Or you just listen to Joel sing. It's kind of, it's delightful. Who wants it? Ephesians 5. Neff's got it. Yes. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church's body, and it is himself his Savior. Now if the church submits to Christ, so also the wives should submit everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourished his Great, thank you. So I want to get into the weeds of this text in a little bit. But before we do, because Paul's launching into, hey, you Christians... Uh, you know, Ephesians is broken up, chapters 1 through 3. Here's, here's the God of the gospel. Here's what he's done to save you. Uh, here's what's real and true about God's kindness through the person work of Jesus. Now, therefore, starting in, verse, in chapter 4, this is what it looks like to live in light of this great salvation. So he, gets, he hits on different parts of our lives. This is the, the overflow of the grace of the gospel in your lives. This is what it looks like to be um, a disciple of Jesus. So he gets into what, what should be the relationship between husband and wife. What, 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 are we, what are we supposed to do there? What does that look like? And so before I want to get, I get into the weeds of, of how this plays out, I want to focus in on two verses that take us back to Genesis. So verses 31 and 32. He quotes from the end of Genesis 2. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That, that's where marriage was instituted first in the history of the world. And then verse 32, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So if everything else in this text is the how, of, of how we're supposed to, to live out this marriage relationship in this covenant that God has given, this points to why. Why in the first place does, does marriage even exist? This mystery, trying to figure out husband and wife and, and submission and sacrificial love and coming together and as Christ loved the church and all these different things, okay, that, that's the how. But why, why? Why does marriage even exist in the first place? And Paul here says, I'm referring to, it refers to, Christ and the church. Uh, John Piper has a, a great uh, book on marriage, This Momentary Marriage, um, I think we've used, we used to use this at one point, and then it's like, we were talking about this earlier. Um, sorry, I forget your name. You were at Redeemer. Kathy? Yes. Kathy was at Redeemer, uh, New York City. 
uh, where Tim Keller is, is one of the pastors. And it's like whenever Tim Keller writes a book on a subject, everyone else should just stop writing on that subject because it's, it's the best that's ever been written. Uh, that, that's what happens with the marriage book. So Keller publishes his, and that's the one we go with. Uh, but Piper has a few things in there that are really helpful. Um, and one of those is the meaning of marriage is to put on display the covenant-keeping love between Christ and his people. The meaning of marriage is to put on display the covenant-keeping love between Christ and his people. And that's exactly what Paul is arguing right here. This mystery of marriage, it's referring to, it's, it's, it's a display of, it's a human metaphor, it's a living, ongoing metaphor of God's love through the person of Jesus for his people. That's why God created it in the first place. So I want to jump back to Genesis since that's what Paul does. And I want to look at a, at a few different components of, again, what is fancily called complementarianism. So back to Genesis chapter 1. So four things that I want to look at. Um, Three from Genesis and one back in Ephesians. First comes from Genesis 1, starting in verse 26. And then God said, let us make man or mankind or humankind, that's the generic term for humanity, in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man or humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then he goes on in verse 28 to give what's, what's often called the, the cultural mandate or the creation mandate. It's basically the job description, the vocation for every human being from the very beginning of, of humanity. What I want us to notice here is, is really a very simple point, but often can get lost or confused, is that both men and women equally image God. It's not like one more images God or more faithfully images God. He actually created from the very beginning... Uh, gender, uh, the sex of male and female, is, is woven into the very fabric of the creation of humanity. And both image God are given the same overarching vocation. So both male and female image God. Second, I want to pull out a few things from Genesis 2, starting in verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the whole land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the, to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So it, it can sound like the, the, the author's backtracking a little bit in the, the narrative of, of creation. It's like, oh, male and female, they're already created. So Genesis 1 is kind of your 30,000-foot view of creation. Uh, we're getting day by day, what, what takes place, day and night. Lord saw it was all very good. Then in chapter 2, it's like a, it's like a microscope. Uh, microscope is, is now honing in on uh, some of the details of creation, and in particular, the creation of humanity. So he is circling back around and, and coming in to look at the details 
of creating men and women. And what we see here is that God creates the male first. So he plants a garden, creates the man, puts him in the garden, and then you go to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it, or to cultivate and protect it. So he, he creates everything that is, makes Adam, puts him in the garden, and says, hey, you've got a job to do. I want you to, to develop culture, develop society. I want you to cultivate this land, uh, bring all of the potentiality of this creation uh, to bear, bring it into fruition uh, through applying your labor, your mind, your hands, your abilities to it, what I've made. And he also uh, gives a, a command, verse 16, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So let's, let's think a little bit categorically. Um, we're familiar with the, the term covenant, how God uh, relates to his people through different covenants. So you have uh, the Abrahamic covenant where he establishes his relationship and a promise with Abraham. Uh, and then later you have the, the Mosaic covenant with Moses. That's when the, the law comes. Uh, and then later with David, and then the, the fullness of the new covenant is when Jesus comes. Well, many scholars, most scholars I would say, actually believe the first covenant that God establishes in human history is with Adam. The three components that are needed for a covenant are land, a seed, or, or a people, or offspring, and a blessing to flourish. And we see all of those things here. God, God creates the man, the seed, puts him in a land in a certain place, and he goes, now, see this land right here? Go make it flourish. Go make it successful. Go make it, it's already teeming with life. Expound upon that. Build upon that. Make it even better. Uh, that's how I want you to image me in this creation. So God, God establishes this covenant with Adam, and then he brings the woman into this vocation. Verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And this is where we get the, the idea of complementarianism. It's actually uh, to, to make his, his counterpart, to make the one that would fit correctly in this relationship. Uh, not, not that he would somehow be better than or more important than or more valuable than in the, in the plan of God uh, for human history, but it's saying, hey, there's only part of what I want to do here. There's a, there's a, a complement. Uh, if you guys want to see definitions of complement, sometimes Oxford Dictionary uh, definitions are helpful. On the, the handout, I've got a few definitions. So when we talk about complement or complementary, a complement is a thing that completes or brings to perfection. You add to something in a way that enhances or improves it. So it's actually increasing the value of and the benefit of. Uh, the, the sum is not, or the, the total is not equal to the sum of its parts. It actually grows exponentially because of what's brought into it. So, complementary, used of two things when each adds something to the other or helps to make the other better. Going together well, working well together, serving to fill out or complete, mutually supplying each other's lack. So what I want us to see from this is that the man, the husband, is the covenantal head of the relationship. And what we see here, actually, let me, let's look at one other thing quickly that 
adds to this. In, in chapter 3, after the fall, so they, they take the, the fruit that they're not meant to, reject the authority of God, rebel against His kindness, His goodness. So we actually want to declare independence from you, go our own way, not submit to the one who created everything. After that happens, even though the woman who was, was the one who initiated um, that rebellion, of course, the, the man complicit in it, he, he's right there um, sitting passively, idly by. Uh, but she was the one who initiated this. You see in verse 8 of chapter 3. And they, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? It goes after the man. We remember the narrative gives it to us. It was actually the woman who sought out this rebellion first. Again, this is not getting the guy off the hook. But she was the one who actively sinned. He passively sinned initially. And where does God go? He doesn't go after Eve. He doesn't first go after the serpent. He goes after the man. That is because he is the covenantal representative head of this relationship. So that, that really means three things. And I wanted them all to start with R, and so I'm going to get a little bit fancy on this. It means he represents the family in a unique way. He is responsible for the family in a unique way. And P in parentheses, protection of the family in a unique way. So again, this is, this is not... This is not coming down to a difference of value between men and women, uh, of male and female. We see that both are equally created in the image of God uh, to put him on display and, and called into the same vocation. And go, go cultivate and work and keep and take care of and exercise the gifts and abilities God has given to you um, to put me on display. That's what God communicates from the beginning. And yet when it comes to this unique institution, this unique relationship that God has created with the explicit purpose, as we see in Ephesians 5, to put on display how God interacts with his people, there are are specific roles to play within it. And and that means my role as a husband with Aaron is unique. Now, now we're both meant to put on display who Jesus is. We both have responsibility for our own lives and and areas where we sin, need to confess and change and grow. Uh, We both represent the family, in a sense. Uh, We both should seek the protection and the good of each other. And yet... I have a unique, like a a different type of calling with respect to these things and how I represent the family uh, and how I care for. uh, Paul uses the language of nourishing and cherishing your wife, Uh, creating an atmosphere that that not only uh, the physical, material needs are taken care of, but also relational, emotional needs are also taken care of, uh, both uh, nourishing and cherishing. And so this is a... It is a unique vocation for a husband to put on display who God is in the marriage relationship um, that we see from the very beginning of creation. All right, third, continuing in Genesis 3. So you guys walked through a lot of Genesis 3 last time, so I don't want to get bogged down too much with the details, but there is something I want us to see in how sin affects, how, how the initial fall how brokenness from, from the fall uh, has found its, its way into the marriage relationship. And those of you who are married, I know you can resonate with this. 
Um, all right, verse 13 of chapter 3. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? So this is where the, the blaming comes, you know, the shame, the guilt, the finger pointing, hey, it's not my fault, somebody else's fault. See the, the unraveling of, of relationships through sin, through disconnection from God. In verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because of all, all this you have done, curse are you. All right, so that's the curse for the serpent. And then verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, God is not setting this up as the ideal. He's saying this is what is going to be often the case in marriage relationships because sin has been introduced into the human narrative. This is now what is often going to characterize um, aspects of, apart from redemption, apart from restoration, apart from the work of Jesus, this is what's going to characterize the, the cycle of desire and dominance. Now, this word desire, uh, usually we use that in a positive sense. Like, I, I desire pizza for lunch today, and so I'm going to go enjoy some pizza. This word is actually used, the same Hebrew word is used um, in the next chapter. I'm talking about Cain and Abel. And, and basically, it's, hey, there, is, there is sin crouching. Remember, Cain's the guy who got jealous of his brother, Abel, and so he goes and kills him. Um, let's just read it. It's right there. Go to what verse am I looking for? There it is. All right, so Cain gets jealous, and the Lord comes in verse 6 of chapter 4 to Cain. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Same exact word. So, so that, that helps us understand what the, what the author is communicating in saying this word desire. It's, it's the kind of getting a hold of to control type of desire. It's, ooh, something is unsafe here. I, I need to, ooh, my, my desire, I have an angst until I kind of get my hands upon and pull down and, and get into the right position where I can finally feel okay again. Uh, it's a controlling type of desire. And so what... What um, God is, is saying here is the marriage relationship in brokenness because of the fall, apart from redemption, is going to be characterized by this cycle of often uh, the wife desiring this certain type of control uh, because the, the, there's a, a fear of not being taken care of or protected or uh, known and loved or accepted or whatever else and saying, I, I've, got to, I've got to make him who I think he needs to be. I need to kind of control and pull the strings enough uh, through words and uh, interactions and everything else to make it be just so. And the tendency of the husband is to, to feel threatened by that, um, to feel threatened that oh, I'm not going to be respected, I'm not going to um, be looked to as, as an actual man. I need to somehow use my often more physical strength or louder voice or presence or whatever else to, to dominate this relationship. Uh, to, to somehow keep things under wraps, and so I don't have to be to live into the same kind of fear. Uh, I mean, how, those of you who are married, how often do we see that cycle just unravel um, in our in our conversations? Whether it's marked by fear, it's marked by you're, you're not giving me the thing that I, I think I need to be okay, and so I'm going to exert whatever I have at my disposal um, to to try to make it better. So this is actually a safe and okay place for me. So that's the third thing that I want us to see, that because of the fall, 
there is this cycle of desire and dominance. that can rule. It can really rule our relationships and our conversations and our home, the culture of our homes, if we're not aware um, of how Satan is trying to undermine our relationships. Then fourth, I want to go back to Ephesians chapter 5. Because this is, where we, this is where we find hope in the midst of this cycle of desire and, do, and dominance. Uh, we see how, how Paul weaves into his teaching about what the marriage relationship should look like. The very hope of the redeeming God who has come to us in the personal work of Jesus. So again, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as, the Christ, is the, as Christ is the head of the church. His body, and is himself its savior. So, so even there, we're hearing the language of, hey, you are part of this church. You are part of this corporate body. Uh, the one for whom Christ died, he is its Lord and Savior. You're a part of this people. You're a blood-bought, blood-purchased people. Uh, you know this kind of love already. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, Sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their, their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So again, woven into the, the very teaching of uh, what, what, what we're meant to do in putting on display the gospel through marriage, through that relationship, uh, we're reminded of, look at the God who's already come to you, who nourishes and cherishes you, who sacrificed himself, who gave himself up that you may be brought into a loving relationship. Look to this God as the foundation and very means by which you're able to live out the same reality um, in your marriage. And so that's, uh, again, I think Jason hit on this some... Um, uh, last week, but it's the difference between a transactional, or I think he used the word contract, um, transactional versus covenantal. So what, what's, a, what's a transactional understanding of, of marriage? What would characterize that? Exactly. And the flip side, you didn't do this for me, therefore I'm not doing that for you. It becomes very much a, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. But if not, then there's no way you're getting a back scratch. And sometimes that can even be literal, right? <laughs> it's like, oh, it's a hard day. Um, so transactional is saying, hey, what have you done for me? Um, are are you, you respecting me? Are you loving me? Are you speaking to me in the way that I want to be spoken to? Are you kind of considering my needs and my desires and my wishes if you are, then ah, it's, it's kind of easy to, to love other people, uh, to, to love our, our husband or wife. 
But as soon as you, you cease doing that, or I sense uh, the, there, there's kind of a hint at that not happening, then retreat, pull back away from that. Um, but if we go back to how marriage exists to put on display the covenant-keeping love between God and his people, like that, that's, that's why we exist. And in fact, there's no escaping it. Notice the, the language, the indicative language that Paul uses in verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. It's like six years ago when I, when I stood at the altar and, and, and said my vows with, to Aaron and before God and before all those people, I actually stepped into a certain role that for the rest of my life I will be living into. I, I will always be representing who Jesus is in a unique way in our relationship. Uh, putting on display and communicating to a watching world, to my wife, uh, if he gives us children, to our children, uh, to, to, to you all. Whoever would see us, I'm actually communicating the character of God. It's a question of how well am I doing that? Am I telling the truth or am I lying? When I'm impatient or controlling or harsh or insensitive, what does that communicate to, to, to Aaron or to other people about who God is, who Jesus is? Well, it's telling a lie. And that's where the rhythm of confession and repentance has to be a daily part of, of my life. It's like, that, is, that is not who God is. That is not the way that, that God has loved us in Jesus. And I have, I have told a lie with my life. I've proclaimed falsehood uh, about the character of God. So it's never a question of if we are representing Christ in the church. It's how well are we doing it? Are we living into the vision that God has established for marriage, that the vocation that's really inescapable? As soon as we step into, the, into that, that covenant, uh, there, there's no getting away from that. It's like, ah, I, don't, I don't really feel like representing Jesus in the church today. It's like, no, that's, that is the vocation that's been handed to us uh, as we, we step into the institution that God has created. So two quick things on authority and submission. I want to see how we're doing on time. I won't go at length in these, um, and maybe it'll come up more in the Q&A. But I want to look at Mark 10, 35, where Jesus talks about authority. Because, uh, I mean, let's be honest, th- this kind of understanding of, of uh, a husband having covenantal headship or authority um, in his home and, and a wife submitting uh, to her husband as the church submits to Christ, it's not really very popular, um, believe it or not, today. And so... Let's look at how God actually defines, and Jesus defines, what authority is and what it's for. Um, so go to Mark 10, starting verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him, to Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. It's rather bold. Uh, verse 36. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said, and they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you 
must be your servant. And whoever must, will be, would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So husbands and future husbands in the room, myself included, the, the, the covenantal headship that is given to us, the, the responsibility to represent and care for um, and exercise a level of authority in our homes and in our marriage relationships, it is not to be done, as Jesus says here, as the Gentiles do, to, to lord it over other people. To kind of say, hey, look, look at my position, look at my status. I can, I can do as I please, say as I please, and you must uh, at least proverbially bow the knee to me and, and, and look to me as, as something greater. He actually says, no, that the opposite of that is true. Uh, look at the, the very authority of Jesus. Uh, God himself incarnate comes to us not to be served but to serve, uh, to give his life as a payment, as a ransom, as a sacrifice, for our good. I mean, Jesus' life is characterized by this again and again and again, leading all the way up to the cross. He, he sees a situation, he sees a person or a people group or, or, or whoever it may be, and he's led by compassion, uh, by a desire to, to care for. And he steps in to do what is necessary, to, to make the necessary sacrifices for the good and the flourishing of those around him. His entire life is characterized by that. It, it's, a, it's a being emptied out, a, a pouring out for. Uh, if you sat uh, during the nine, you heard a lot of this, uh, the way Stephen lived into this vision uh, of how I'm, I'm now free. He was completely free to give his life away for other people. And that is the vocation of representing Jesus in the marriage relationship. It is saying, yes, God has given me an authority uh, to be responsible for, uh, to, to protect, uh, to represent my home in, in, in this marriage. And that means I have the opportunity because of the freedom the gospel provides to lay down my life, to initiate sacrifice, to come underneath my wife and children and say, how do I cause them to thrive? How do I cause them to flourish? Um, how do I become less and less so that they may come to know Christ more fully, uh, to, to, to live more fully as a human being, as God defined it? I need to be the one, I need to be the one with Aaron in our home initiating sacrifice. And, and a lot of times it's it's easy for me to think in the bigger categories. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah. someone comes in to, to threaten Aaron's life. I'll take a bullet. You know, I'll tackle the guy. I'll do whatever I can. If I have to die for that, I will do that easily. Like, that's easy for me to, to sign off on. But what about when the, the dishes are sitting in the sink after dinner and both of us are tired and we watch a TV show and we both want to go to bed? Who's going to initiate that sacrifice? That, you know, it could be I come home from a long day. She comes home from a long day. And I'm, I'm not... I know it's good for me, but I'm not, like, prone to process my entire day. Like, I'm just kind of like, ah, oh, just give me a book, and I want to kind of debrief internally somehow for a little while. Uh, what does it look like for me to engage and initiate with Aaron and say, I'm going to lay down my preferences and ask you intentional questions to draw you out and say, how are things going for you? Uh, what happened today? How, how can I be praying for you? How, how's, your, how, how's your heart? A number of, of men, older men, have told me that's such a good question for guys to ask their wives. How's your heart doing right now? Like, don't just tell me the facts about a situation, but how do you feel about these things? And then the hardest thing is for, for me not to, to jump in with, like, okay, well, here's what you do next. It's like I've got to sit there and be like, that sounds hard, full stop. And it's like circle around later. And let's, <laughs> let's bring up some, some processing further. I remember um, in high school I was in a Bible study with a group of guys, and the guy who led it married for a number of years, and I don't know if we're going through Ephesians. I think we're going through Ephesians talking about marriage. 
And, and he's like, hey, guys, th- this is going to, to blow your minds. Okay, you know, 16, 17-year-olds. This is going to blow your minds. So get a pen, piece of paper, you need to write this down. He goes, someday, if, when, you're married, uh, there are going to be times when, when your wife comes to you, and you guys are going to be sitting down next to each other, and she's going to share some sort of problem that's going on in her life. And, and in your mind, you're going to have it mapped out exactly what she should do, the, the, the people she should talk to, how she should handle these details. And what she wants from you is to say nothing and just sit there next to her. And we're like, what? Sit, you just sit, okay. And, but it's so true. Now, this, this could be flipped as well. Like, I need that sometimes. I, I, don't want, I just want to be heard and listened to and cared for. So it's not, it's not so dichotomous. Um, but oftentimes, initiating sacrifice means, all right, my preference is to maybe not talk. But I need to, to make that sacrifice. To, to, it's going to cost me something to go love my bride, my wife, and represent Jesus in saying, I'm going to set that aside in order to care for you, to draw you out. So it, it often comes out, the harder part is the millions of different ways that we're called to, to give up something for the good of um, our wife. All right, quick word on submission and then we can, we can discuss for a little bit. First uh, Peter chapter 3. I want us to see one thing, and then discussion is so... I heard from last week, discussion was so good last week. Um, so I want to step into that. All right, First Peter 3. Uh, starting verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Quick caveat on that. I know I said one thing, but a lot of times people take this text and say, oh, therefore, like, put anything in your hair, wear any jewelry, in clothing, whatever else, that's, that's inherently sinful. Peter's point here is uh, the, the tendency, you know, we see in our culture too, is, is women can find a, a level of identity. It was particularly true here. A level of identity in how am I seen, how am I viewed? Am I seen as, as beautiful? Do I, do I kind of meet the standard from what I, I see on, on billboards and magazines and movies and everything else? Uh, the standard of other people. And so there's a tendency to be drawn to, to emphasize external um, Ways of being recognized as beautiful. And he's saying, don't emphasize that. It's not evil. It's not wrong. It can be stewarded really well. Um, let your adorning be of the, the inner person. Like, focus on a, a, a beautiful spirit, a beautiful character, one that represents Jesus really faithfully. Um, emphasize that. All right. Uh, verse 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So what's his point here? Biggest thing I want us to get from this is wives are not meant to submit to and respect the leadership of their husbands because we're somehow worth that submission and respect. We're not Jesus. We're fallen. I'm fallen. I fail to lead often. And so Peter's point here, I mean, notice he's speaking to women who were already married, came to Christ, husbands didn't, and they're trying to figure out, okay, what do we do in this relationship? He's saying, continue to, to, to live into this, this vision of a complementary 
uh, relationship in marriage, representing Christ in the church as best you can, at least your half of it. Be praying for them and displaying a sweetness of spirit that hopefully they will finally be convinced of the gospel. So he's telling her, submit to and respect the leadership of one who doesn't even trust in Jesus. How deserving can he be of that kind of respect? Not even redeemed, like a total rebel in the kingdom of God. So, so the point for us is that the proper kind of submission and respect in the home, it's not because we deserve it. It's because you trust that God is good and wise and faithful and that where we fail, he's still going to work through that brokenness. I also want us to be careful that we, a lot of times we hear submission and we can import a lot of unhealthy definitions of that. Submission is not um, becoming a doormat. It's not becoming, I have no value, no voice, I have no intelligence, somehow my husband is smarter than me. As soon as he gets married, he's like, brilliant, and I'm less brilliant. Like, that, that doesn't happen. Oftentimes, most of the time, my wife sees many more things than I do. And I'm like, okay, Aaron, I, I, what did I miss here? Relationally, dynamically, like, what's going on here that I just, like, walked out of the room? And that's happened far too many times to count. So she, she sees so many more things than I do. But again, it's getting back to covenantally representing, being responsible for, and protecting, uh, recognizing that leadership. And so submission, rightly understood in the positive sense, is saying, as a wife, I'm going to do everything that I can to to say, husband, take me to Jesus. Lead our family, lead our home faithfully, that we may see and treasure and delight in the God who is more and more and more. And so I want to to empower you and strengthen you and, and make it as easy as possible for you to love me uh, to, to, love, to love me as Christ loves the church and to carry our family to the person and work of Jesus again and again and again that we may be shaped and formed by the gospel. Um, that's what a proper submission looks like. And, and, and proper um, exercising authority in the home as, as the guy is making it as easy as possible for our wives to, to trust our leadership. So I, I so nourish and I so cherish and I so sacrifice for you on a regular basis that... It, our wives don't have to question, like, oh, does he actually seek my good? Does he actually care for me? Um, it becomes a very, a very easy thing. So I want to turn to discussion for a little while, uh, discussion one on those handouts. So let's do that for a bit, and then we'll come. Next section will be just several minutes, and then we'll do more discussion. All right, 1230 is quickly approaching, so I want to take just a handful of minutes, and then we'll pick right back up in discussion. Um, I want to look at two distinctions and then talk about strengths and weaknesses and how we should approach that and then jump back in. So first, difference between role or roles and tasks. So a lot of times, culturally or the family we grew up in, we assume that husband, that means you do these things in the home. And wife, that means you do these things in the home. Um, that, that is converging these two things or conflating them when they're not meant to be identical. The Bible has quite a bit to say about the role of, of the husband representing Christ, uh, the wife representing the church. It has very little to say about the specific tasks that are done within the home. But so often because we, we grew up in a certain environment or a certain culture or certain expectations or you saw your mom and dad do certain things, um, that gets brought into your own home and relationship, 
And there are these expectations, oftentimes not spoken until you're yelling about them. And like, oh my gosh, I, I didn't realize I expected you to be doing these things and you're not actually fulfilling what I thought a husband should be or a wife should be and do. So we need to keep this distinction um, on the forefront of our minds. In particular, I'd say for the premarital couples, as you guys begin talking about, um, hey, what is our home going to look like? And start navigating those things. Be careful around this distinction. And know that you're each bringing in a lot of expectations that you don't even realize you're carrying with you. Um, we, Aaron and I thought we're like super thoughtful during our engagement. We're talking through all these things and recognizing how our family cultures shaped us and what we're going to do differently and all that. And then you actually get into just the daily rhythms of life and you realize, wow, we, we have vastly different expectations for what the other person's going to do um, just on a regular basis. And I didn't even know it was like you could think differently about that. It's like that's just, that's just what you do. That, that's how you, you, you know, brush your teeth or, you, you know, Squeeze the bottle from the end, not from the front, because it has to roll up. Or, like, you don't even think about there's a different way of doing these things until you step into that environment. And then it, it draws that out and highlights it. Um, so just be ready for that. We, about two months into our marriage, we, we sat down and we were seeing tension around a few different things like that, because uh, we grew up in very different homes in terms of uh, tasks. And so we said, okay, your family's great, done a lot of things well, great. My family's great, done a lot of things well, great. Let's learn from both of those and recognize that we're establishing a new home and a new family. What are we going to do? What does it look like for us? How has God wired us? What are our personalities like? What are we good at? What makes sense for us to do as we come together in our home? So roles versus tasks. Uh, another one is sins versus idiosyncrasies. Now this one gets a little bit gray because we may define them differently, especially when it relates to the other person. So, um, what would be an example? I tend to be really literal about everything. And so, if there is like a, a different word that could be used, or I, I don't fully understand what's being explained, I would like drive down in in conversation with Aaron until we get full explanation and like, okay, we're really on the same page, we're using our words correctly, we really understand that. Now, that could, that, that's probably an idiosyncrasy. Like, I, I love clear articulation. I love to know exactly what, what is being communicated, what is actually trying to be communicated. And yet, this, it can creep over into the sin category oftentimes. Like, if I'm not showing grace toward Aaron and just, like, relaxing a little bit, like, I, I can be so, in conversation, I can get so intense and high-strung sometimes where definitions mean everything. And Aaron's exhausted by the end of it. She's like, just let me talk. Like, I just want to communicate. And, and so it, it is my, my tendency toward, like, I grew up in a home where over the dinner table, you know, some people just talk weather sports. We, we were in theological arguments, and we're pulling out the dictionary and the encyclopedia and be like, no, right here, he said this is this. That was the home environment I grew up in. And so it's just like, I bring that with me, and I've, I've tried to taper that off, but it still, it still comes out quite a bit. So idiosyncrasy, shaped by my own home, my own parents, culture. I uh, grew up in a, a home of teachers, and so just like exactness of language is a big deal. But that can so easily creep into uh, to sin. But, okay, here's another one that would fall squarely in idiosyncrasy land. Aaron doesn't close drawers or doors. It's not a sin. It's not a sin. I have to tell myself, I'm telling myself right now, it's not a sin. But I walk by the dresser, and I'm like, boop, 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 boop. I walk to the kitchen, 
like, babe, it was a half more inch, and it could have just been closed all the way. She's like, I don't know. I thought I did. So I tease her about it. It's not a, it's not a sin, but oftentimes we can view the idiosyncrasies, the tendencies of our um, spouse or husband or wife as being sinful. Because like, oh, that's somehow against me. And like, oh, you're not recognizing my desires and whatever else. And again, those can creep into the sin category. Um, there are some things, tendencies that we have that are not inherently sinful. But if, if your husband or wife is like, hey, it would really mean a lot to me if you would try to not do that anymore, um, then it's loving for us to, to give that up. Um, obviously, a conversation around that, that can become too much of an extreme. But we must think in these categories. Is this idiosyncrasy or is this sin? And at which point, perhaps, is one transferred into the other? Um, so two distinctions that are helpful. Um, oh, I wrote down on here another one. Dishes in the sink. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge proponent of soaking dishes. Any other guys can relate with me? I don't know. <laughs> so I, it, may, it saves a lot of time. It's really efficient. Like you just set that pan in the sink, run some water on it. You go watch a TV show and you come back and you're like, wipe, wipe, done. It's over. Otherwise, you've got to spend like time grinding. Anyway, I've got a great argument for it. Um, I think that's an idiosyncrasy. I think Erin, I don't know, she might put it somewhere we're in here. But if that's a high value for her, to love her and a sacrifice for her, I should probably stop soaking dishes as often as I do and move more in that direction. We're still working on that. Still a lot of soaking dishes. Because um, sometimes I forget about them and they're there for like a day or two. That's, that's inefficient. <laughs> but So two distinctions that are helpful. Quickly on strengths and weaknesses. Um, if you guys want to pull out those sheets to look at, that's where a lot of the discussion is going to be. This, this also can carry on to lunchtime discussion um, as you guys engage all of this. So a few questions that I wrote down to begin thinking about strengths and weaknesses of of your person you're engaged to or married to, um, do you know the strengths of your spouse in the first place? Do, do you even like think about them? Would you be able to articulate them? Do you talk about them or do you just think them? Do you presume upon them? So cert, certain ways that, that your spouse is a gift to you, you just kind of assume, oh, you're always going to do that for me. I don't, I don't need to be grateful for that or actually recognize that in you. Uh, where does your self-righteousness come out? Where we start to think things or say things like, oh, you don't do this like I would. Uh, Aaron, you were talking about that, how Bob Thune at the symposium was saying, we, we establish these, these types of functional righteousness, the things that we're pretty good at, and we think things should be done that way. And when someone else doesn't do it, we judge them and condemn them for not being as holy and good as we are. Another really hard question to, to wrestle with, what do you do with the weaknesses of your spouse? We have options when it, when it comes to, to their weaknesses. We can accentuate those weaknesses, drawing them out. We can condemn and judge and make them feel ashamed and guilty for it. We can ignore, say, ah, oh, it's too difficult. I just kind of want to move away from that. Um, or we can actually seek to cover those weaknesses. And, and that's precisely what Jesus has done for us. Um, this is where I'm challenged often. Uh, the tendency is we, we, we presume upon the gifts and the strengths of our spouse. And then as soon as something is frustrating to us and we don't like and we see a weakness, all of a sudden that becomes the biggest deal. It's like we've got to talk about it, we've got to poke at it, we've got to bring it into the light, we have to have a huge conversation and say, why, why is this going on, why are you doing this? First of all, ignoring all the good things, but then accentuating and drawing out and, and making bigger the weaknesses. Um, 
it, a humbling fact is Satan, like Satan, where we get that, the name Satan in Hebrew, means accuser. It's, it's the finger pointing, hey, look what you've done, look who, look who you are, look how you failed, look what's wrong with you. So as harsh as this sounds, when we are accusing our spouse, we're actually imaging Satan really well. That we're accentuating what's, what's not good in, instead of celebrating what is and seeking to cover and care for and see growth and transformation in the areas that are, that are weak and broken still. Because Jesus, he didn't come and point the finger. He said, I will be condemned for you. I will be punished for you. I will suffer on your behalf so that you may grow into life and holiness and what you're actually meant for. Um, so we have options there. I, w- I want to read one verse and then take whatever time is left to, to discuss some more. Um, 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love passage, but I want to focus on one aspect of it in particular. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, starting verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It is not insistent on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. And get this in verse 6. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. What do we celebrate with our conversation, our communication, what we emphasize in our relationships? Are we, we living into the opposite of love and saying, hey, wrongdoing, sin, brokenness, there it is. Let me tell you all about it, how it affects me and how it brings me down. Uh, hurry up and change so I can have an easier life. Uh, that is a form of rejoicing at wrongdoing and, and, and so accentuating, so elevating that, um, that we, we resist what God may actually want to be doing through you or through me with our husband or wife, with the person that we're called to love and care for. So instead, rejoicing with the truth, rejoicing in wholeness, rejoicing in a transformed life, rejoicing in what God has actually called us to in imaging him faithfully, um, I can be an instrument that God uses in Aaron's life, and she can be an instrument in my life to, to help draw us into more of the presence of Jesus, uh, to know his love, to walk in holiness, um, to be faithful. And, and so that, that's what I want to encourage us as we, we navigate through, think through strengths and weaknesses. Um, what is the ratio of what we emphasize? Do, do we just think or presume upon uh, the strengths and, and, and gifts that we have in our spouse? Or are we articulating those? being grateful to God and to the other person, and talking to other people, like bragging on um, our spouse and saying, look, look at this great gift that God has given to me. And when weakness, weaknesses show up, and, and they will, we seek to cover them, to show grace, uh, to be patient, to forbear, and to seek the, the holiness and the growth um, of our husband or wife. So let's go back to discussion for a little bit. See what we can, we've got a few minutes. Let's discuss.